This album is dedicated to all brothers and sisters. My men and my women. And your time. Put all my hands together for hip hop. This is what I'm talking about, y'all. It's hip hop. 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 The stories of hip hop, of rap music, are the stories of a million MCs who, inside of them, the words are coming. The words they need to make sense of the world around them. The words are witty and blunt, abstract and linear, sober and fucked up. And when we decode that torrent of words, by which I mean really listen to them with our minds and our hearts open, we can understand their world better. And ours too. It's the same world. This is Rhymes and Reasons. I'm Christiana Ray Cologne. I am a Chicago native and a poet playwright, actor, and one half of the hip-hop duo April Fools. The first song I want to talk about is Nina Simone's Blue Prelude. And I picked that song because it's one of those that I can distinctly remember the first time I heard it. And I was 21 years old and hanging out with my really good friend Deja Taylor, who is one of my co-collaborators. And she was on a big Nina Simone kick at the time. And she came over and got me really high and then made me sit on my bedroom floor and like put these giant headphones on me and was so excited about this recording that she had never heard before of Nina Simone that she had just discovered. And it was like she had just discovered some new cure for a disease or something. She was so excited. And I feel like it was my first experience of synesthesia where I could like see the colors, where I was like hearing colors and I could really distinguish how all of the instruments were having a conversation with one another. And that experience was so deeply artistically inspirational that like that was the moment that I fell in love with weed. <laughs> but I also think it was the moment that I really fell in love with Nina Simone. Like I had always appreciated her music, but that particular song really kind of revealing her melancholy and what a sensitive and emotional woman she was. I think in my more recent political life, I look to Nina Simone as an example of someone who was always issuing a call to action and who really believed that art should be used as a political tool and that art should reflect the times and that it's the artist's responsibility to provoke social change and that is a deep undercurrent of my work right now. But in Blue Prelude you hear a woman that is doubting love and that is hurting and I think that one of the, the things about revolutionary struggle right now is that there is a lot of pressure to be strong all the time. And I think it's really revolutionary to be vulnerable and for black women to be able to grieve in public and to grieve in their art. And so to see this woman and hear this woman embodying both the revolutionary ferocity that we hear on songs like Mississippi Goddamn in this very quiet, vulnerable place where I am hearing the instruments weeping <laughs> together was a transformative experience and really kind of shaped that artistic epic of my life. Goodbye. 
in the second verse, I think it is, she says, here I go, now you know why I'm leaving. And it is exactly that, is like cutting yourself off from a situation before the situation has a chance to hurt you. And I'm a person that loves love very deeply and I feel very deeply. And so I experience heartbreak very deeply and I know how every time, every time it's like, oh my God, I'm never doing this again. <laughs> Why would I ever allow myself to be this vulnerable again where someone can hurt me like this? And I think the triumph is always loving that one more time. To hear someone at that moment of confrontation of you know, whether or not I'm ever gonna love again because isn't love only just Jesus, ever a prelude God to sorrow, a prelude to heartbreak? Why would I embark on that journey? But to listen to the song on repeat is to experience the journey over and over again. And so in the song, we, we are hearing her turn away from love, but I am always asking myself that question, like what is love but a prelude to sorrow and having to answer it in a different way that allows me to love again. Alabama's got me so upset. Tennessee made me lose my rest. I've grown up on all sides of the city, but Logan Square is my home. It's where I spent most of my childhood and where I live now. Logan Square is really sort of the landscape of my childhood imagination and where I have come back to. And I call myself the Duchess of Logan Square because up until earlier this year, my father was the alderman of the 35th Ward. So I've been the princess of Logan Square for a long time. Before he was the alderman, he was the executive director of the Logan Square YMCA, and before that, the Near North Regional Manager of Chicago Park District, and before that, the executive director of the Logan Square Boys and Girls Club. So my father has always been deeply rooted in the community and involved in politics and community organizing, community service and centered in Logan Square. So I've always been daddy's little girl in that respect. And, you know, my parents are both artistically inclined as hobbies and hobbies that they haven't fully pursued. They met in a creative writing class at Columbia College, but neither of them like continued with their artistic education at Columbia. When I was growing up, my mother was modeling and acting and taking dance classes and taking painting classes. and. I was by her side for all of that. Like I would sit in the lobby of the theater while she was in rehearsal. So I think that definitely shaped my love for theater and my comfort in the theater. Uh, so I always was deeply exposed to it, but I think, you know, my parents grew up not necessarily being encouraged to pursue arts as careers. So they found careers other places. And I wasn't necessarily encouraged to pursue the arts as my career either, but I was deeply, deeply immersed in the arts from a very young age and grew up with a lot of role models of folks who were pursuing arts as their full-time gig. So that sort of carved the path for me to do the same thing. I bet you thought I was kidding, I think the reason that I'm a full-time artist now is because I found Young Chicago Authors when I was 15. Uh, I don't think that I would have even conceived that I could 
make a living for myself as an artist had it not been for the mentors that I met through that organization. But that was completely happenstance. You know, I just like saw a flyer at a lunch table and went young. But it was definitely all of the writing classes and art classes and dance classes and acting classes and everything leading up to that that made me seek out those kinds of opportunities and seek out those people. My dad has always been trying to improve the neighborhood and I think almost to a fault at this point because the economic development that has happened in Logan Square has meant that a lot of the people that I grew up with can't enjoy the neighborhood anymore. So it was a, a dangerous kind of scary neighborhood when I was a kid. Gang violence was really serious at the time and shootings were really common in the area. And at the same time, my dad was working for the park district and like making improvements to Unity Playlot. I think one of the things that really politicized him, the incumbent alderman before he was elected, Vilma Colom, was in the pocket of Dick Mel, who is a neighboring alderman, and funneling Logan Square's resources to his ward in exchange for you know campaign support and contributions. And Unity Park, which was the playground that I played at that was walking distance from our apartment in Logan Square, my dad wanted to make improvements there as you know the superintendent of that park region and was getting a lot of opposition from her because she believed that having a basketball court at that park would attract a certain element that she wasn't interested in having in the park. And it was those kinds of fights that made my father want to get involved in politics mm -hmm. and take on this person that was not really serving the community because he grew up in the community, he lived in the community, he was working for the community in all these other ways and coming across these nepotistic political roadblocks. And then fast forward to him winning and being the alderman and creating an arts corridor along Milwaukee Avenue and, and being really conscientious about making the neighborhood attractive to entrepreneurs and small businesses and not wanting it to develop in the way that Lincoln Park and Wicker Park developed, which were historically Puerto Rican neighborhoods as well, that the artist bohemians take over and then, then the yuppies take over and then no brown people can afford to live there. And I know that was something that he worked very hard to keep the neighborhood diverse and balanced. But you can only control development so much. But I mean, that has kind of been like the backdrop against which I've, my artistic development and my political development has taken place. Mm -hmm. You try to plant something in the concrete, you know what I mean? If it grow and the, and the rose petal got all kind of scratches and marks, you're not gonna say, damn, look at all the scratches and marks on the rose that grew from the concrete. You're gonna be like, damn, a rose grew from the concrete? I literally have been creatively writing since I could hold a pencil. <laughs> so. My mom really kind of drilled into me achievement, the values of achievement. So on days off school, you know, when my peers might get to like veg out and watch Nickelodeon, my mom would wake me up, make sure that I was like up and dressed before she went to work and say like, I want five poems and three book reports on the dining room table when I get home from work. <laughs> 
So I would go to my little childhood library, pick out three books, read these books, write like an essay summary of these books, write however many poems, pulling whatever I could out of the air. And it was stressful. For a five-year-old, this is stressful. <laughs> I would be at the dining room table stressed out and I hated it, but it instilled in me a, a writing practice and a practice of writing about what I had read and just a grasp and a command of language that was uncommon for a five-year-old. So I had my first poem published when I was six. My mom kept all those poems that I would leave for her on the dining room table and at some point she submitted them to a, a children's anthology and it was selected. So that is like kind of my genesis story is that I got my first publication credit when I was six years old. I picked Thug Love because it's an, another song that just brings me back to a very specific time and place. I was not really allowed to listen to rap music as a kid, so it was always a forbidden taboo in my household partly because my mom was such an achiever. And my mom, I think, had a lot of internalized respectability issues and felt like rap music was too graphic, too ghetto, didn't want me and my brother listening to that. So uh, I was not allowed to listen to it for the, you know my early childhood. And when I was like 11, my aunt came to live with us and she was 16, so she was my aunt, but we had more like an older sister, younger sister type of relationship. And she was heavy into gangster rap. And she would expose me to these very, very like violent songs, mostly to elicit the shock of this very violent, very sexual language that I had previously not been allowed to hear. And this song was one of the ones that I latched on to. So as a, a sixth grader, like 12 years old, Bone Thugs and, and their harmonies were, were very seductive to me. And I think as I was re-listening to this song yesterday, especially with uh, the news of Tamir Rice's non-indictment coming out, and just thinking about like what it means to be a, a brooding 12-year-old that is seduced by images of violence in America, and what a privilege it was for me to be able to like flirt with this dangerous music and flirt with these representations of violence in the media that are not exclusive to rap, but that are actually all over, you know, cinema and all kinds of music that young people are seduced by because that is the place in their brain development that they are at. 
And, and to be able to play with danger and play with violence in that way and not be like shot for it <laughs> and what a privilege it is. And, and that's like a really sad thing. I think that a young boy who, not to say that he was influenced by rap music, but whatever it is that makes playing with a toy gun sexy or exciting for a young person that is not limited to young black boys, but like little boys are conditioned to like want violent toys, to enjoy violent movies, to like embody these values. And for that to then be labeled criminal or dangerous or threatening because he was a black boy, because, you know, we know that, that wouldn't have happened if he was any other color. So as a 12 year old, like that, that is me sort of dabbling in rap music, a kind of music that like, I don't think any of my writing necessarily resembles that of Bone Thugs and Harmony as being like, oh, this is uh, my intro to rap music. But it, it did create a portal for me to play in this darker realm as a booting melancholy 12 year old. I had a, a teacher, my homeroom teacher was Miss Falbo in sixth grade, and she was this little Napoleonic, tyrannical woman. And we came into a lot of conflict because I was really precocious and always challenging authority uh, from a very young age, but also very bright. And so she and I had a lot of conflict, but I really liked her because she would give us a creative writing assignment every week. So she would cut out these pictures of National Geographic images, spread them out on our desk, have us pick an image, and then write a story for it. And then the next week when we brought it in, everyone had to read it to the class. And I always went above and beyond. My stories were the longest, they were the most detailed. Sometimes I would bring in some artwork. And she gave the assignment around the time that I was listening to Bone Thugs to create a soundscape for the story that we had written. And I don't know what kind of, I probably like did something with like a CD player and a tape deck. I don't know how I created my soundscape, but I know that I sampled the gunshots in this Bone Thug song to create this soundscape for my <laughs> fiction assignment in sixth grade. And felt like really subversive bringing in this cassette soundtrack to my story that like had hints of Bone Thugs and Harmony into Miss Falbo's class. Like, I remember thinking that I was impressing her and impressing everyone by doing this assignment so well, but how cool it was that like actually I was bringing these hints of gangster rap into my international baccalaureate <laughs> classroom. And I think about the privilege of me being able to do that and listen to rap music and be seduced by this violent music from the distance of a gifted class. Uh, and how that offered all these layers of protection that someone like Tamir Rice from the city of Bone Thugs and Harmony never would get because he was a boy in a totally different, unprotected environment. We're not against rap. We're not against rappers. But we are against those thugs. thugs. I think the darkness of it, as I was re-listening to it as a grown-up and 
hearing how violent it really is, the grown-up part of me wanted to like hear it again and hear something deeply political or countercultural in the lyrics. And I didn't necessarily find that. I was like, no, this is really actually celebrating interpersonal and intra-community violence in a way that is really counter to my politics right now. And what does that mean? <laughs> and you know, and that's when I started thinking about Tamir Rice. But I think that like that is that is the thing that drew little Christiana to it in the way that, you know, we are very attracted to like scary movies and gore at a certain phase in our development. This glorification of murder, this glorification of squad, this glorification of like defending oneself against all enemies was really attractive to me then in a way that is like deeply troubling to me now. And even listening to it and listening to Tupac, I was listening to him and wondering like, oh, if I shift this around in my mind and imagine that he's talking about the police, does that make it any better? I'm like, well, no, because he's still talking about shooting people and getting rid of their bodies. <laughs> Those are not things that I believe in. And I arrived at like his, his last line, you know, I got thug love for my nationwide posse. And wondering if I could make the argument that there is like some last pivot and turn for unity in that and still I couldn't really I couldn't really like pull the thread all the way through like I think that the song is problematic <laughs> but I also think that it's an accurate representation of the realities of folks that I am organizing with right now folks who are most directly impacted by mass incarceration so I think at the time, the graphic nature of the lyrics and the celebration of violence and like wanting to feel tough against any enemy was the thing that like drew me to it. And that is the thing now that as I listen to it, I find it really ironic that like I was a pretty nerdy, like goody goody type of kid. That is where I found subversion in a way that is really counter to a lot of the ways that I operate right now. I often say my brother like hates it when I say this in public, but there's a part of me that like really wants to be the Sean Paul of spoken word. Um, <laughs> and so what I hear in Bone and what I love about them is that like they're like singing, they're like the original, before Drake was making like the sing-songy rap style like cool, they really kind of mastered using their voices in a way that was like musical that I think was singular uh, for a long time. And that is something stylistically that I think you can find in the genetics of my rapping, for sure. And I think that that is like what made it so awesome because it was really challenging like hip hop masculinity in a way before it was cool to do that, before it was trendy to do that. But because they did have such a, a violent like you know, thug is in their, you know, I'm bone thugs, I'm hard as a bone, like all of that is in the name. 
And it's like, but in harmony though, <laughs> but harmonious though. And I've always really loved that contradiction and that subversion that like even in embodying the toughest of the tough in gangster rap that like there's still this harmonious element there's still this this like aesthetically pleasing like sonic palette that is I think a lot different than like drill music of today that can be just more military and more I guess grating <laughs> than I think its predecessor in Bone Thugs. Too many families that's been affected by wrongful death. This system and this country has tore apart my family and our family. You can't have a black family and be together. I only vaguely knew who Tupac was until he died. I always kind of resented my mother for that. In growing up and being so deliberately sheltered from rap music to have been alive at the time when Tupac was alive and potentially had access to growing with that music and her shielding me from that. The fact that I didn't understand his his relevance or his importance until after he was dead was something that I was always like really kind of salty about. I just finished reading the autobiography of Asada Shakur and hearing her talk about Afeni and tangentially, but thinking about someone like Asada being in the sphere of Tupac's parents and, and his lineage and what that means for him and like where organizing in the height of the Black Liberation era kind of failed us and failed Tupac's generation and you know how my generation and those folks younger than me are inheriting and reinterpreting that failure. You know, what I hear in Tupac's music is yes, a lot of times political consciousness and a lot of times being deeply affected by and deeply embedded in all of the problems of the failure of the previous generation. So I think now when we're on the front line like there are all these elders saying like why don't you guys respect us and who raised you why ain't got no home training and it's like well you <laughs> I did a lot of organizing in solidarity with Ferguson. Uh, my collective, the Let Us Breathe Collective, was born out of providing assistance to the Ferguson resistance and like bringing tear gas remedies down to Ferguson and forging this alliance with a group of activists that were on the front line there. And we brought them up to Chicago to lead marches here. And in January of this year, we brought them to Rainbow Push to screen the documentary and to have this conversation with Jesse Jackson and all that. And there was this moment in the talk back where one of the Rainbow Push guys stood up and, and just told these activists that they were so disrespectful and they didn't respect their elders and they had no idea of their history and like you guys think you invented activism, we've been doing this for 40 years. And the youngest one of the group, low key, he's recently turned 16 
basically, you know, called them out and said, well, if you've been doing all this organizing, why haven't I seen you? If you have been fighting for me for all these years, why are we in this situation now? And I think right now, a lot of the rage that is being harnessed is reflective of, you know, a generation of leaders that didn't necessarily center the youth or center the experiences that were created by, like, making deals with the Democratic Party. We can't be hierarchical <laughs> about, you know, rap music or violence in music or believe that certain folks are more violent because they listen to certain music, because the media and foreign policy and all of these things in our culture put violence first. It is not black people. It is not rap music. It is very American. It is very colonial. And so to separate out rap music or you know hip hop as being the ghetto of music or uh, a place where the danger is more real or more actualized is unfair and is like playing into the dominant narratives of power structures. But as a 12-year-old, no, it was just like forbidden and sexy for the reason, you know, that it was forbidden and and definitely like I had a lot of the internalized class separations of like, oh, that's ghetto and I'm not supposed to like ghetto things, so I'm going to like it. And now I can embrace it as like part of the multiplicity of black experience and part of the reflection of a reality of, you know, systems that create an environment where you feel like you have to be that tribal and like squat up and ride, you know, I caught a plane out to Cleveland late last evening to help my niggas clean up some niggas no longer breathing. Like I'm going to go to Cleveland and like help my squad murder some people because of whatever, like that kind of mentality comes from lack of opportunity, comes from lack of mental health resources. And now I can contextualize that. But as a young person, you know, I think I was still very much under the spell of dominant media saying like, oh no, only black people act like this. High school is when I became, I think, deeply politicized. My first year of high school was the opposite. I was under the spell of materialism and wanting to be cool. I made sure that my first boyfriend was a football player and Whitney Young is a very special place because at the time, girls were wearing Louis Vuitton and Fendi to class. It was a very high pressure situation where like the highest level of cool at Whitney Young was like beyond designer. Folks shopping on the Gold Coast and as a 14 year old that is like I will never be able to like shop the way these other 17 year old girls shop and yet I felt so much pressure to embody those ideals and be at the mall and like buy my boyfriend a Motorola two-way pager and just very much under the spell of beauty standards and consumerism. And yet I was finding myself 
involved in theater and on the executive board of the African American Culture Club. And I think the big turning point for me, I read Sister Soldier's The Coldest Winter Ever, which the story itself is like really kind of a hood fantasy, but it led me to Sister Soldier's memoir, No Disrespect. And the story of her being politicized and then the reading list that she kind of lays out of her journey to how she became who she is became a roadmap for me and those were the books that I went back to and read. And all of a sudden I was like <laughs> very deeply into the black liberation movement and like learning about the Panthers and really wanting to connect to a liberation struggle beyond myself. And this, so this is a, a shift that happened like between age 15 and 16 where something clicked inside of me where I was like, oh, no, shit is still fucked up. And I think around that time, you know, was also when I was finding young Chicago authors and finding this community of teaching artists and folks who were writing plays and recording rap albums and publishing books of poetry and teaching poetry as their careers. And so this combination of finding all of this black liberation text and finding this very vibrant artistic community where like now I can record a song with Avery but Avery was like the first person to coach me at a poetry slam when I was 15 years old so those are the kinds of examples that I had as a young person of folks embodying both the political and the artistic and the personal in one sphere and that was a guiding light for me and so I went from like getting my hair straightened every other week and like shopping at the mall and wanting to wear Echo all the time because <laughs> that was what was hot in the streets at the time to like wearing cowrie shells and black berets and wearing my hair natural. Very quickly that happened. And you can see the threads of that all through the DNA of my adult life as an artist and activist now. Yeah, so Sunday Candy, Donnie Trumpet and the Social Experiment, prominently featuring Chance and Jamila uh, with production by Peter Cottontail. And these are all like my homies. And I first heard this song at Pitchfork, standing in the mud in a sea of so many dirty people. But seeing this young person who grew up in the same arts community as me, seeing Jamila, who I admire really deeply. It sounds ridiculous now, but like I coached a slam team that she was on when YCA sent a team to nationals one year and so to see these folks that like are my peers or that maybe I've had the opportunity to mentor you know I've known Peter since elementary school me and his brother went to school together in like fifth grade on stage at Pitchfork <laughs> with all of these people singing along I was sobbing I was sobbing in the crowd because it was so beautiful to me to see my folks on stage at that level. And I think such a, such a reward for Chicago in the midst of 
all of the problems that our city has right now, all of the social divestment that is going on in schools and in arts programs and in social services right now, to see these young people on stage sampling a gospel song, to write an ode to their grandmothers, to me really embodies the hope of this moment. So Sunday Candy has been my jam for these past few months because it reminds me that like centering young folk is the way that we are gonna win the liberation movement, is the way that we are gonna free ourselves because they are endlessly resilient and endlessly talented and endlessly imaginative. And that is what is going to solve the systemic issues that we are facing right now because nothing but that kind of magic is any match for the systemic issues that we're facing right now. So just the audacity of that kind of joy and hope and jubilance in the midst of a city that in so many ways is set out to destroy lives like chances, I think is so important and needs to be uplifted and needs to be, you know, appreciated and celebrated. constantly in awe of the young people in our city right now and I mostly feel like I need to be quiet and listen to what they have to say because I think they understand intersectionality in a way that we did not <laughs> at a young age and so someone like Chance is gonna know that <laughs> he is only a grandma's love away from being Chief Keefe. And in the same way that like whatever sheltered me, whatever like concept of safety I had could have easily been shattered. Shootings happened outside my window, literally. And because I was wrapped in my family's protection, I felt like I was safe and invincible, but I'm not and I wasn't. And I could have easily been a Hadia Pendleton. And I think someone like Chance recognizes that there are no separations and that the things that go into creating a neighborhood where young folks are seduced by death and embracing the nihilism and the fatalism of their situation because they are being so violently divested from, I really didn't want to spend a long time talking about Spike Lee or Chirac, but I think that like it has to be acknowledged. And I just want to like give the caveat that I haven't seen the movie. I'm gonna see the movie. I'm not boycotting the movie, but I already feel in my spirit how problematic it is. <laughs> and I think the chance is really on point in articulating that it is a slap in the face to mothers who have lost children to violence to suggest that a sex strike is the answer to systemic injustice. And that as problematic and exploitive as Chirac probably is, the name itself, before it was appropriated by like kids from the suburbs who thought it was cool to glorify Chicago's violence, I think it was a really apt analogy 
because there's <laughs> not a whole lot of difference between closing 50 schools and bombing 50 schools. The social impact is very similar. The military occupation of Iraq is a parallel to the military occupation of the South Side. People on the South and West Sides are being policed and occupied, their neighborhoods are being occupied by a militarized police force in the same way. So I think that young people who coined the phrase Chirac were not necessarily just glorifying the violence of the city, but making really apt parallels to how America creates social instability for profit and how that is something that is being done in the Middle East and it is also being done in black neighborhoods, black and brown neighborhoods all across America and really specifically in Chicago. And I think that like drill music is reflective of that reality. To run a drill is like, you know, I, I think such an apt military analogy for the lives that young black and brown folks are leading right now. They War is being waged upon them. So for them to be making war music is very apt. And I'm very grateful that folks like Chance and the people that he is making music with can understand that that reality is not dichotomous to their reality, that they are connected. And I think that that is why it's so valuable to lean into the joy. Because if you have that privilege and you have that platform uh, from which to speak and from which to put some light into contrast uh, to the darkness that so many people are living through right now, then we should do that. And I am so grateful that he has like given us that. I went to UFC and it was crazy because <laughs> prior to that I had only been around regular white people um, and so like I didn't even know that those kind of white people existed in my personal experience and what I mean by that is <laughs> I experienced the unique confluence of ignorance and privilege at a scale that I had never before experienced. So white people who had like never really interacted with black people before. And I don't know why I was just so naive as a, a teenager. I thought that by virtue of being in Hyde Park, which is a very black kind of like the seat of black creativity really, that my experience at UChicago would be more reflective of the neighborhood. <laughs> and it was so the opposite. And so I remember getting to U of C and moving in on campus and hearing in the orientations the borders not to cross, like don't go north of here, don't go south of here, don't go west of here. And as a native Chicagoan, this being my city and me feeling always free to move around all sides of the city, finding that like, so offensive but so accurately representative of how the university functions in the city as this enclave, this island of privilege and detachment. Traffic, traffic, rain clouds, acid, blue to the red to Michigan Ave. Socks are sliding, lock up your bikes, take your seat and your front tire with you to class. Traffic, traffic, Randolph to Jackson, Grant to Millennium, belligerent cabs. I graduated from UChicago in three years and I did that because 
I was blown away by how racist the place was. My second year living on campus, there were a group of freshman girls that were throwing weekly parties in their dorm, and each week there was a different theme. And I came home from a poetry feature one day, like really upset because I had said something on stage that like was offensive to white people and I hadn't meant to hurt the feelings of my white fans, but I think that I did. And I came home really upset about this and was talking to one of my U Chicago classmates that like lived in my dorm that was also part of the YCA community and telling her like, oh man, I just came from wordplay and I featured and I, I think I really offended some people. And she said, oh, well, don't worry, because a bunch of white people really offended me tonight, so I guess we're kind of even. And what had happened was these girls in our dorm had come up to her in costumes for their straight thugging party, asking her if they looked ghetto enough for their party plugger. And she was an RA, and so, like, had a position of authority to tell them, like, hey, I don't know what you mean by that, but that's, like, really offensive, and maybe you shouldn't do this and they went ahead with it anyway. <laughs> and so I tried to go to the party with like all seven of the other black people on campus. And when we got there, it was over, but there were some folks like still hanging out in the hallways who said, oh, are you guys looking for the, the straight thugging party? You guys should have come earlier. You would have been the most thugging ones here. And this is like, seven, eight black scholars. <laughs> we are all of you Chicago's black kids. <laughs> and so this debate happened, you know, one girl was like, oh really, what do you mean by that? And dude was like, oh, come on guys, you know, don't be like that, you know what I mean. And I went back to my dorm fuming and immediately started seeing the images from this party show up on my Facebook feed. And before the night was over, I had saved them all to my hard drive and written an op-ed and sent it to the Maroon and sent it to the administration and said, this is a violent thing that is happening in my living space that makes me feel unsafe, uh, that creates a hostile environment for me. This is racist. This is not okay. This should not be okay in campus housing. Uh, these young people were alerted beforehand that this was offensive <laughs> and decided to go ahead with it anyway. And that was a Friday night. The following Tuesday, the campus newspaper ran my piece about it. By the end of that week, the Tribune had picked it up. And thus began a media maelstrom at which I was at the center. The campus backlash was so ugly. A lot of grad students, a lot of alumni, and definitely the undergraduate peers of these young white girls were just clamoring in support of their right to free speech and it was just a party and they're just having fun and you're ruining their lives by like making them out to be racist. And somehow in this situation, I became the bad guy for like calling out these girls for having this offensive party. Black students are so oversensitive, hyper militant. Like these were the things that I was getting hate mail. <laughs> 
and being constantly pulled out of class to have meetings with the administration who refused to at all sanction or discipline or even publicly state that this type of behavior was not okay, which was like one of the things on my list of demands of the administration is to take a stance on this kind of behavior, to take an institutional stance on the idea that students of color should not be mocked and ridiculed on this campus. And that when you have a straight thugging party, what you're doing is saying that the people that serve you in the lunch cafeteria, the people that clean your dorms are beneath you and worthy of your ridicule. And so you can live in their neighborhood and consume their resources and then make a mockery of what you believe their culture to be. And this is supposed to be the cream of the crop. This is supposed to be our future senators and Fortune 500 CEOs. And if this is the kind of education that they're getting at this world-class institution, then this institution is failing. What if I was white? My first crush would never call me nigga. When got older, I would miss the bigger picture. Probably would never use the word unless I'm citing rap lyrics at a party where it's never overheard. What if I was that was a really draining time. And I was working lots of jobs to pay for college and taking a full course load and also having to play like racism translator for <laughs> my peers in the administration. And I just thought it was so hugely unfair <laughs> and toxic and really like draining to my mental health. And I wanted to transfer and I thought about going to another school. I had turned down a full ride to Howard to go to U of C because I believed in their life of the mind, free discourse, <laughs> liberal arts, mumbo jumbo, and I like bought into the elitism of that. And I felt so betrayed by this institution that I wanted to leave. And then I was like, eh, actually, I'm just way smarter than these people and Instead of being chased away from this elite education, I think I'm just gonna prove that like I'm better than them and graduate a year early and get this degree and get out of here. And so that's what I did. Started taking summer classes and, and wrapped it up and was like, I'm not gonna give this institution a single dollar more than what I have to. So let me get these credits and get out of here. I'm black, unless I need to get a fucking job, even if I get a fucking haircut. And maybe we be shooting all day and all night, cause we feeling like the world never hears us. And also going to public school my whole life, right? So I am a product of CPS from kindergarten to senior year of high school. I've been in the public school system and I think I've had the best possible education that can be extracted from CPS because my mother was ferocious in seeking out those opportunities and making sure that I took every gifted test and like transferred me to three different schools because she was always looking for the better program and the better gifted track. And while I was in these gifted programs, like yes, they were mostly white, but there are white people that send their kids to public school <laughs> and then there is everyone else. And so the kinds of white folks that I had been around were white folks in public school who even if they had a certain amount of privilege were still a part of the public. 
and a part of public discourse. And like I was having challenging conversations with like my white classmates as a second grader. And those are the kinds of interactions that I was comfortable with having and used to having. And so I think the, the deeply concentrated power elite type of white folk <laughs> was not something that I was coming into a lot of contact with. And that's what I was dropped into at U Chicago. And it was, it was a culture shock. Yeah, absolutely. It's funny because, you know, I talk about having these dialogues about race as a second grader, you know, at Thomas Edison Regional Gifted Center with my classmates. And it was a very similar conversation, actually, uh, but we had it at age seven. And, you know, it was this white boy, as we were learning about civil rights, the like five page chapter in the social studies book about MLK and the civil rights movement, he turned to me in class and asked me like, don't you ever wish that you were white? And I feel like there's not a huge intellectual gap between that second grader asking me that question and this 19 year old elite college man telling me that black people should actually be grateful for slavery. The difference is that seven-year-old had me sitting next to him to have that debate with. And even though it was like not a comfortable or neat or tidy debate, he got that experience and I got that experience at age seven. So I don't believe that he grows up to be a 19-year-old person who is then telling me that I should be grateful for slavery because otherwise, Black people would be swinging from trees and like eating bananas or whatever it is that he imagined would have happened had colonialism not intervened. This is why I wanted to bring in Nina because her speaking about the artist's responsibility to society is something that I carry with me always as an organizer. I recognize that by virtue of being an artist, I have a voice and I have a platform that a lot of folks don't have, and that that is something that was afforded to me by my parents, by my community. And if I'm gonna have that platform, then I feel like it is my duty to use it to amplify voices that are typically marginalized and to leverage whatever resources are afforded to me to uplift and center those folks and to use those platforms because I also have had access to all this elite education. You know, I feel like I can both center marginalized voices as well as disrupt the status quo in terms of like creating arguments that like you Chicago students then get to debate. So I get to do both things in my art and in terms of like creating really provocative discourse and centering folks that are affected by violence. I think that my, my activists and my artistic are very much in harmony right now. The Let Us Breathe Collective was formed as a collaborative of artists using our talents to do what we could to amplify what was going on on the ground in Ferguson. So our aim was to raise money for tear gas remedies, 
but we came down with photographers and, and videographers and took portraits and then got prints of those portraits blown up and created a pop-up gallery at the protest site and then donated prints of those images to the protesters to sell so that their organization could develop a stream of income. So constantly using art to innovate what activism looked like, to make it seductive. I think the reason why Ferguson set the stage for the Black Lives Matter movement as we know it now is because Ferguson was young folks infusing what we think of as protests with hip hop aesthetics in a totally new way. So developing, you know, the improv in the way that like you might go to YCA and find yourself in a cipher and see young folks freestyling, that spirit and that energy was what was happening on the front line. So folks are freestyling protest chants and bringing really contemporary hip hop aesthetics to the front line. And so young people are energized and are leading and are at the front of that and harnessing that creative energy and recognizing that in order to have a liberated world, we have to first be able to imagine that world. And so imagination and creativity are gonna be at the crux of any liberation work that we do because liberation is an artistic endeavor because it is all about construction. It is all about curating a new experience. It is all about chiseling something from something that doesn't exist. It's a creative endeavor and so I'm always approaching my organizing from that way and trying to use art to make it sexy and seductive and accessible to folks who maybe wouldn't ordinarily be in an organizing space, but also making sure that my art is provocative and uplifting things that need to be uplifted. So really turning that lens outward and, and reflecting what is going on in our world. Hip-hop matters because it is one of the most radically democratic art forms that we have. It is all about the circle, and it is all about sampling what has come before in order to make something new. And I think that we're gonna find threads of that in all of the activism that is going on right now. So it is both you know, reflective of social movements as well as a vehicle for those movements to progress. <laughs>